Hello, everybody. What's up? What's up, man? We are back after a week off. I'm Mark Supreme. And I'm Chris Kiergaard. Welcome to State of Peoria, brought to you by State Farm Agent Aaron Kilgore, located at 3805 North Sterling Avenue, where he specializes in car insurance, home insurance, and life insurance, and investments. You can give him a call at 309-685-7111. This is our eighth installment of the collaboration between Strictly Pop 90.7 FM and the PJ Star, and it's an interview series about politics and all about the P. And tonight we have with us two candidates in the, the two candidates in the hotly contested second district Peoria City Council race, incumbent Councilman Chuck Graeb and challenger Peter Kobach. Uh, and thank you both gentlemen for being here with us tonight to talk about the issues in the second district. Thanks for having us. It's fun to be wearing a, a jacket on top, but I'll admit that I'm wearing slippers on, on my shirt. <laughs> <The> pandemic. <laughs> Hey, I definitely ain't got jeans on, man. It's all good. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're pleased to have both of you guys in our eighth installment. Uh, we appreciate you guys taking time out to inform voters of your platform and what you guys want to do in your positions or respective positions uh, for District 2. Uh, we'll start off with Peter Kobach. Who is Peter Kobach? Uh, that's a great question. Well, Peter Kovac is someone who uh, really loves the second district. And I mean, I tell people that, but that's not enough just to say that. It's also important for me to say, you know, what I'm about and what I do. Uh, I volunteer with my neighborhood associations. I served on the board of my last neighborhood association. Uh, I volunteer to shovel the sidewalks when it snows in front of businesses on West Main Street. I volunteer to pull weeds in the Western Avenue Greenway. Um, and I helped build a stage and maintain the community garden that used to be on West Main Street. Um, but I'm also, I've also made a career out of helping government do more good for more people. I've worked for the city of Peoria where the projects that I helped create were praised by city staff, including uh, Mr. Grayev, as being innovative and forward thinking. I worked for Peoria Public Schools where I recruited teachers from across the country and across the world to come teach here in Peoria. And I, I believe I can recruit any young person to come live in Peoria and start or continue a career here. And now I have the privilege of working with the Peoria Park District where I'm expanding opportunities for at-risk youth outside of school. So I've seen how government uh, can do more good for people uh, but I know that we've got huge challenges facing us in not only the second district, but all of Peoria. And, you know, you might hear uh, the other candidate, Mr. Graham, call some of my ideas radical. And when I think about that, I, I, I understand why someone who's been in office uh, for 20 years, who's been in politics since 1997, might see change as uncomfortable or radical. But you know, Peoria has serious challenges. We're one of the most segregated cities in the country when it comes to housing and education. Our small businesses are struggling to survive uh, even before the pandemic, and it's only made things worse. And we keep sprawling further and further north and forgetting our core historic neighborhoods. Uh, in the last, last time I ran two years ago, I started keeping count of how many of my friends had left Peoria, friends and neighbors. And I got to 20 and I stopped keeping count. And I've gotten tired of waiting for something to change. And so I, I've stood up and uh, today I'm excited to share some of my ideas and my platform to bring real change to the second district and to all of Peoria. 
So that's Peter in a nutshell. Um, you know, other things, I prefer crunchy peanut butter over creamy peanut butter, but I don't want to get too controversial too early, so I'll just leave it right there. Okay, and we'll do the same for Councilman Grayup. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself for the people that are watching. Who is, who's Chuck Grayup? Well, Chuck Grayup uh, has lived in Peoria all of his life. I was born and educated in Peoria went to uh, what was then called Washington School. It's now the Buddhist Temple on Moss Avenue, a few blocks from where I'm sitting right now, and then went to Peoria High School, which is a proud high school in the heart of our city, and it serves the second district and the third district. And uh, then uh, became a teacher uh, after getting my bachelor, my bachelor's degree at Bradley University, became a teacher at Peoria High School. Uh, where I taught from 1972 to 80. And then I was asked to serve as Dean of Students at Manuel High School from 80 to 85. And then thereafter um, uh, was administrator for high school evening programs and adult education programs. My family grew up just a stone's throw away from where I sit right here. Uh, my, my two siblings, uh, we lived on Underhill Street, later Borland. Uh, part of that has now uh, been uh, consumed by Bradley University. I believe there's a dormitory where I used to live. And we lived in the, in the shadow of St. Mark's Church, which is thankfully still there with St. Mark's School. And this is where I grew up. And I've seen a lot of things change in Peoria. I've seen some things change for the better and some things change for the worse. But I've been very, very uh, privileged to be not only an at-large city councilman, but the district councilman for a district second to none, second district uh, for about 20 years. And I think my opponent would have a difficult time convincing the mayor or some of the other members of the council that I'm not a change agent. I am a change agent. And I believe we made the budget much better than it would have been um, when the pandemic hit, because I think they were ready to take uh, a meat cleaver uh, to the budget very prematurely, which would have been would have had disastrous consequences, not only for the second district, but all the heritage neighborhoods in our city. So uh, that's my background. Uh, and I asked if I should call you Mark or what if you had a preference, but that's my background. Mark works. Mark works this time. And we'll stick with you for the first question. In your view, what is the most pressing issue for the first district? Well, you know, Abraham Maslow talked about the hierarchy of needs and safety is at the apex of the pyramid. I will tell you right now that the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is take a look at what's happened uh, that hasn't been remarkable that I would have been contacted about during that 24 hour cycle, what's been happening in the city. And first and foremost, we have to be sure uh, we have safe, humane neighborhoods where children can play and grow up and where people don't have to be afraid. Because without that, we have nothing. And maybe this sounds like a broken record, but I've been saying it, not 97, Peter, but since 1995, when I was first elected. And uh, I will tell you that if we do not have uh, safety in our neighborhoods, adequate police and fire rescue services, we have nothing. People will leave 
the city. It's just that simple. And we have people now who come to our city in spite of the people who want to purvey doom and gloom. They come here because they love Peoria. Uh, within just about a mile radius of me, I know of some 10 people who have come here, uh, mostly from the West Coast because of our low cost of living, because of all the amenities we have. And they're part of the Zoom generation, which is huge. And James Kemper, who um, uh, was one of uh, the primary candidates, made that point uh, very well. And I listened very carefully. And he's right. Peoria has a lot to offer, but we do have to work on our problems. Thank you. And moving on to Peter, you ran for at-large two years ago, as you mentioned, fell short. What has been the difference in running for the, in a district seat versus an at-large seat from last time? And also, again, you're running for District 2. What does the council need now that it doesn't have already there? Yeah. Uh, so I ran two years ago, and um, had no experience running for public office, just was uh, kind of fed up with our uh, political leadership and, and thought someone needed to speak up and be honest about the changes that our community needed. Um, I learned a lot during that process and I, you know, I, I'd like to see it not as a failure, but as a way that I grew and learned a lot from uh, people all over the city. I got to knock doors in the fifth district and the first and all over the city. Um, the thing that I love about one of the things I love about the second district and why when this election came around, I wanted to continue advocating for these important issues is that the second district is kind of like a mini version of the city of Peoria. It's like a microcosm. And when you look at the racial demographics of the second district, when you look at um, the businesses, uh, when you look at the income levels of the second district, it kind of mirrors the rest of the city. Uh, and so, Many of the things that would work in the second district, they're going to work in other parts of the city as well. And I think the second district can be a model for innovation and change and that that innovation can then uh, kind of ripple out from the second district. So when I thought about, you know, what are the things that I advocated for two years ago? Uh, all of them fit into the needs and the opportunities and the potential of the second district. And you asked, what is the most important issue in the second district? And I appreciate this question because, you know, it's one of the things that uh, Mr. Grave and I actually agree upon. We both want safe neighborhoods in the second district, uh, but we disagree on all of the tools that we might use to get there. And I think that's really important is that um, I'm proposing a number of new initiatives that would expand our notion of what public safety means. Uh, we've had two tools in the toolbox for too long, uh, you know, fire and police, and both of those are overburdened with demands for service. Uh, I've been researching other cities and other communities that are reimagining public safety by addressing the root causes of crime in their community. And I think we can do the same thing. We need to address you know, the underlying causes of poverty, the lack of mental health resources, the lack of affordable housing, uh, struggling with addiction. And when our city does better at addressing those, then we can prevent crime before it happens. Uh, you know, for decades, we've been uh, uh, frantic or frenetic about locking people up uh, and 
have missed the opportunity to really support people and prevent crime before it happens. Uh, and so I'm not anti-police. I used to work at the city and I, I had the privilege to meet a lot of wonderful law enforcement, but I believe that they have, they've been trained for a very specific uh, situation and we end up sending them to you know, a, a person experiencing homelessness sitting on a front stoop and that the underlying cause of why that person is there uh, does, is not um, able to be adequately addressed by law enforcement. And instead, we need to partner better with other institutions to actually support the underlying cause that uh, someone is calling 911 or something calling for the police. I'm going to kick it off to Chris, but before I do, just want to let everybody know that is watching. If you have your own questions, please throw them in the comment box. We're going to get to them momentarily. Chris? And, and I, I want to follow up on, on one portion of that where I, I, want to, I want to tease out a little bit whether there is some agreement or, or a different approach to it. And, and uh, Peter, I'm going to continue with you and then move over to, to Chuck on this. But uh, you, you mentioned mental health services as one of those elements. Uh, and I know, I know Chuck has been very critical of the closure of, of Zeller Mental Health and some of those other services that have gone away over the years in Peoria. So I, I would like to know from each of you uh, what services you think the city can have a role in in bringing back that, that go beyond the additional work that's already come in from Unity Place and, and some of the other, the Human Service Center, some of those other organizations that have developed or grown over the years. So Peter, you first and then Chuck. Sure, so I think it's really important to advocate at the county and at the state level and at the federal level for more resources uh, for those um, who need them when it comes to mental health. Of course, that's- have, 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 have we not been doing that so far? No, I was just gonna say, that's a given. So I think that that needs okay. to be that needs to continue happening. Um, and I think that is the role of a, a city council member. But what we haven't done, and this is why, uh, you know, I'm excited to be introducing new ideas and not just repeating what we've always done, is introducing the model, it's called different things in different places, but uh, uh, essentially community navigators or, or uh, either social workers, mental health workers, counselors, street outreach teams that work alongside or instead of law enforcement to respond to calls for service, especially nonviolent ones, to provide support services. You know, different cities either hire these people themselves, but we also have world-class uh, healthcare system in Peoria. And I will be advocating that we build more in, uh, intentional partnerships with these institutions so that we can leverage their expertise so that when a call comes into the city of Peoria and we've traditionally said, you know, it's a, it's a police officer that has to go out there. I want to reevaluate whether that's always the best choice. And we do have uh, resources for those experiencing, you know, mental health crisis, but it's about connecting those folks to resources quickly and more efficiently um, so that uh, it doesn't escalate into a, a bigger problem. And and what what's sort of the the startup cost for for lack of a better term of, of one of those on a, a city level where a city chooses to contract with, with an organization like that rather than than make use of, of say the OSF street team that may deal with some of those people sure. right now. Sure. So uh, two examples that um, uh, I I know more of the costs on there's the cahoots model in Eugene Oregon and that is about one percent of the police department's budget. Um, and it ends up 
being able to address uh, 17 to 20 percent of the calls in Eugene, Oregon. And while the police department there originally uh, was skeptical of this idea, now the police chief says they can't imagine life without it. Um, you have Alexandria, Kentucky, because some people say, you know, you mentioned Oregon. Oregon's different. Uh, actually, uh, Eugene is not that much bigger than us. They're about the same size. But you think of Alexandria, Kentucky that hired on started with just one social worker. And so these don't have to be exorbitant costs. But I'll say that I mentioned that you, you could ex uh, imagine a city contracting that. But you could I think we need to start with just having more intentional conversations with our healthcare partners and seeing if there's a way that we can pilot these initiatives to study them and see what works best for our community uh, without uh, expenditures. And then when we see the data that shows, you know, I'm in favor of setting a goal that says we want safer neighborhoods and being blind to the tools that get us there. Look at the data, see what actually works, and then fund those programs. So first, let's collect that data. And if it works, expand it to the funding level that would increase safety in our neighborhoods. Okay. And Councilman Grab, I want to want to go back to you with the, the same question on on what more the city can be doing to address mental health services. And, and just like Peter, I may interrupt you part with the answer with a follow up. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, a gigantic uh, mistake uh, was made somewhere in the 1980s when. Uh, some folks thought they were going to save money by using a different approach for mental health services, and that would be what was called community-based, quote-unquote, mental health. Well, what that meant was all kinds of draconian changes in mental health service delivery, including the closure of regional mental health centers such as Zeller. And I remember when this was a huge issue uh, that played out involving some state lawmakers Unfortunately, the side that won uh, succeeded in closing Zeller. Uh, the conversation that was going then was, gosh, it costs us $77,000 a year to have someone at Zeller Zone Center who needs help. Let's just think about what it costs to put people into our correction systems who need help. Our mental health services may have addiction problems, whatever, and really shouldn't be on the street because they're unsafe and society is unsafe when they're there. What we have in the city of Peoria right now is wholly inadequate. And certainly 37, 38 psychiatric beds at Unity Point isn't going to cut it. And I think most of the people in Peoria, I certainly the people of the second district understand that. And in some cases they've had loved ones who have gotten in trouble because they stopped taking their medicine or whatever and maybe done some very bad things. And they end up being uh, placed at the entity point and released in a couple of days before they're well. That is a prescription for absolute disaster. And so we must be about the business of addressing this with our state lawmakers, as well as with the city. I, for one, would have no heartburn putting in as part of a line item of a budget uh, a mental health worker who would be on duty, uh, uh, well, we would have a mental health care worker on duty during all four of our police shifts, if you want to use the shifts that the police department use uses, to go to where they might be helpful. Obviously, we don't expect a mental health care worker to be able to uh, capture a bank robber or something of that sort. But this is a real issue, and it's not only in Peoria, it's all over our country, and we need to address it. 
Okay. Uh, so it sounds like there may be some some overlap on on approaches there. Um, I, 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 I've heard it. <laughs> I I, I want to want to stick with public safety for a moment and uh, and and ask both of you and, and Chuck. I'm going to stay with you and then we'll go back to to Peter. Uh, the city is is of course hiring a, a new police chief to replace Chief Marion after his retirement. Uh, what are your your personal and as a representative for District Two, if, if elected or reelected, what what are your personal criteria? What what do you want to see the new police chief embody in terms of priorities and approach? Chris, is that for me first? Yeah, for you first. Well, I think Lauren Marion the third, who took retirement and is now uh, in Eureka, director of security over there. I think he as I look back on my years of public service, uh, he by far is one of the very best police superintendents we've had. Not to say that we haven't had some very good ones in the past. We've also had some not so, not so good ones and then very good ones. But Lauren Marion was concerned about peer mentoring. In other words, if an officer is having some stress issues or some problems that is bothering him or her, they have the opportunity to not have a label put on them and to work with peers. And that was a struggle to get that done. And Chief Marion was very concerned about the morale of the men and women who work for the Peoria Police Department. It's not easy being a police officer nowadays. Everybody's a Monday morning quarterback. And one of the things that happened under Superintendent Marion, and, and let's give credit to Patrick Urich, uh, and I think I weighed in on this, that it was important that the Peoria Police Department uh, achieve professional accreditation through the CALEA process. We're one of about 5% of the police departments in the whole country that has that status, which means, coming from an adult educator, continuing education for our officers, which is absolutely critical. So I would want a chief who's, who has uh, humanity, ability to empathize with others, like Lauren Marion III. That's what I'm looking for in the next superintendent of police. But I'm also listening to what the stakeholders have to say. And our city manager has gone about the business of structuring a process whereby we have the stakeholders, some of which are churches in the second district, their leaders, uh, wanting to weigh in on this. I, I, I want to follow up real quick, and then we'll, we'll go to Peter, too. And, you know, the, the previous two chiefs, uh, both both Chief Marion and before him Chief Mitchell were, were homegrown police chiefs. To, to what extent do you think it's important to, to have somebody from outside of Peoria versus somebody potentially who, who has risen up through the ranks or, or has some record of prior service with the city? Well, we've gone inside before uh, during my years, and we've gone outside. Hmm. Sometimes the insider has done a good job, sometimes not. Sometimes if you have a corrupt culture in a police department, which we do not have that here, you definitely need somebody to come in who's a change agent from the outside. Uh, I would say that uh, we should just cast the net wide, let those who are qualified and who want to serve within the department uh, throw their hats into the ring. And remember one thing, we can talk about this from now until the cows come home, but ultimately in our form of government, the city manager is the only employee of the Peoria City Council, and ultimately, uh, he, in this case, will make the final selection as to who the police superintendent is. Patrick Urich has always consulted with the council before he's made a major 
uh, cabinet appointment, and I believe he will this time as well. Okay, excellent. Peter, uh, I'd like to hear your response to, to both of those, both in terms of, of priorities and what you want to see from from the new police chief, as well as, as what you think about homegrown record versus outside. Yeah, and, and I think you know the difference in our, our answers here really, I think, exemplifies the difference between us as candidates. And I, I heard Mr. Grabe saying, you know, we essentially want more of the same. The last guy who was in the position, uh, we want another one of him. And uh, this is no shade on, on uh, 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 Chief Marion um, as a person, but I think we are ripe in a moment when we should be looking for someone who looks at things with a fresh perspective, who is willing to take the moment where our community is searching for new ways to make our neighborhoods safer uh, and to build more trust between the community and the police department. Um, so I would advocate that we search for someone who wants to reimagine public safety. And that's not that doesn't mean get rid of police officers or be anti-police, but have a vision for uh, how we can do things better. And I, I think that's what you know, it's it's critical that we listen to what residents are asking for. That's where we get some of our best ideas. And I'm so glad that the city is facilitating a process to gain input on this. But it's also important for an elected member, uh, in this case, Mr. Grabe, or a candidate, in this case, myself, to lay out a bold vision for what an idea could be. And usually that's informed by what they're hearing from their neighbors. Uh, what my vision is, is informed by what I hear from my neighbors and people in our community and the research that I've done. And that is, like I said, someone who's willing to reimagine public safety, someone who's willing to target our resources to those places where we see the highest rates of crime or the contact with police, that's willing to pair lo traditional law enforcement officials with uh, um, uh, maybe non-traditional support services, like I mentioned, social workers, mental health workers, street outreach teams, someone that's willing to uh, uh, explore and implement uh, ways of strength, strengthening the police advisory commission so that when complaints are made, there's a stronger process for them to be heard and resolved. Uh, so I'm, I'm not, I don't want more of the same. You know, I, I am very grateful for uh, Chief Marion for his service to our city, but we need change. And that's what I'm advocating for. And I want to be, uh, you know, concrete and clear that I'm bringing those new ideas, and that's what I will be looking for as I talk to my neighbors about the next chief of police and as I talk to the city manager after I'm elected about who we want in that position. Right. And then, oh, sorry, your second question was about homegrown or outside. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, um, I, I agree with uh, Mr. Grayab. Uh, this is something that, uh, uh, you know, we might find the right person inside or we might find the right person outside. It's, you know, do they earn the trust of the professionals that serve in the police department at present? And can they build better relationships between the community and uh, those professionals? And I think those are the two most important qualities that support the uh, uh, um, uh, uh, vision for reimagining public safety. Those are the two most important qualifications there. Um, and we might find that person outside of Peoria, that, that we might find that gem within the police department that's, that's been waiting to help move the department forward. 
Okay. I, I'm going to hit you both with one more question and then toss it back to, to Mark. Just a reminder to everybody who's watching, please keep putting those questions in the chat. We're getting some, some interesting ones in there that, that we will get to in a moment. Uh, you, you both indicated on your questionnaire that, that the city might need the, the state to, uh, to adjust the time uh, on which to move our pension systems, the, the police and fire pension systems, to full funding. You, you both said it in slightly different different words on the, the questionnaire that, that you filled out, but I take that to be the same meaning in, in both cases. Sitting aside for a moment, and I've been a broken record on this, Springfield tends not to act for a while after they, they engage in their first reform, uh, which they did a couple of years ago, bringing the downstate police and fire pension systems together. I want to ask you both this, and I've Peter, I'm going to stay with you and then, then go to Chuck for this. Isn't that kicking the can down the road? I mean, if, if they reset the ramp to get to full funding, we, we saw what that did with the Edgar pension ramp in, in the 90s. The state made the minimum payments or skipped payments, but made the minimum payments when they did year after year and was astonished and surprised when the cost kept going up. And that's what our problem is right now, is that the, the cost has kept going up after we've made the minimum required payments and we're, we're in budgetary trouble now because of that. And, and you know, whether it's a fee, whether we got to ask the voters for, for more money another way, it, it's because we made the minimum payment. What stops us this time from doing the same thing and just pushing the problem 10 years down the road to a different council after whoever's elected is done? So Peter, I, I want to hear your response to that. Sure. So. I think, look at it this way. We have um, about in the, in the 40s, 50s, we used to be a 12 square mile city. Now we're a 48 square mile city. And our population has pretty much stayed the same. Uh, it's uh, kind of uh, maybe grown by a few thousand people. If we had grown our population to uh, keep pace with our liabilities. And by liabilities, I mean by the extra roads that we were building, by the infrastructure that we were supporting, by the subsidies that we were providing to developers. If we could have grown our population uh, in relation to that growing of our boundaries and our liabilities, I think we'd be in a much better place to fund those liabilities like the public safety pensions today. So I think any candidate running has to acknowledge uh, that those public safety pensions are a continued liability and be bringing forth ideas of how we stimulate economic development, equitable economic development, and grow our population so that we can fund those liabilities. Um, and, you know, in the last forum, uh, Mr. Gray mentioned the Zoom towns, but in the same breath said that we, uh, you know, we shouldn't be, we sh it's not about growing our population when Zoom towns are specifically about attracting remote workers to come work in Peoria. Zoom refers to being able to log on to Zoom in your workplace rather than traveling to work. And that means updating our infrastructure, especially our high speed internet and making it more available to attract those remote workers to come work in Peoria. But in addition to that, when I talk about economic development, I'm very specific about bringing ideas that support small businesses and support incremental we'll, 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 we'll talk about business development yeah. in a little while. I, I want to know how it is you're, you're going to get an appetite for five other people around the council to vote for paying more than the minimum payment on, on pensions if we can extend out the, the ramp on these. 
because it, it's natural human nature to, to reduce that payment and have have free money for for any of the other necessary things, whether that's fixing the potholes in our roads or or better funding public safety or or anything else. Can can you commit right now, number one, that you're going to be a vote to pay more than we owe if that ramp is extended out? One and two, what are you going to do to get five other people to vote with you on it? I think once we have a vision for growing our city that we agree upon. Uh, I will vote to uh, 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 pay above the minimum. Until then, we have to build consensus around what that economic development vision is. And one council person can't do it, but they can bring ideas to the table and work to build that consensus with their colleagues. So uh, it's not one. It's not me pretending like I have all the answers. It's not me pretending that I can come in with a silver bullet to solve the problem. But it's me bringing forth some ideas that I want to work with my future colleagues around the horseshoe on to try to put us in a better financial footing. Okay. And, and believe me, we're going to get to economic development, both of them, I, I promise. Uh, Councilman Graham, uh, same question to you on uh, extending the ramp. Are, are you willing to commit to, to paying more and, and how do you get the votes to do it? Well, I think we have to see uh, to what extent uh, the tier two uh, approach combined with the reamortization of the 600 plus pensions, to what extent that will help remedy uh, the financial uh, fix we find ourselves in. And that will take time. I have looked at tables, actuarial tables, uh, as to how this could play out and where we're gonna be in 20, 30 years. And I don't think anybody knows for sure, but we do know that things have to change. And I know that you know there are some folks by virtue of the pension that they draw uh, because of agreements and contracts that were made in the past, they get automatically every year a 3% cost of living adjustment. Now that is a mistake that's been made in the past and we're paying for it right now. But I think we, we have to work with our state lawmakers. Again, this is where sometimes I think uh, those who aren't familiar with the way government works, they don't understand that all remedies uh, and all solutions are not found at 419 Fulton. Uh, we have to rely on both our state counterparts as well as our federal lawmakers to help us do things. And without uh, further adjustments being made in Springfield, we're going to have to continue to meet our pension payments. And that's not going to be very good if, if we don't see some of the changes uh, pursuant to the tier two adjustment and the consolidation of the 600 plus pension systems that we've had. All right. I'm going to toss it back over to Mark then and uh, let him ask a few. Chris, I hope you don't mind. Uh, I, I was going to jump into economics and things like that. So we'll get a jump for quick uh, to both of you. We can, we can start with uh, you councilman. Uh, Pure public schools received more than 800 $800 million from cannabis sales as a part of the Restore, Reinvest, and Renew plan. With that being said, being the former whiskey capital of the world, is cannabis an industry that PR should be taking a more aggressive approach on for economic development? Yes. And I think uh, we already have, and I think our state uh, has embraced it as well. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, our, you know, one of the most important things that we need to cultivate, and again, this is can't all be done at 419 Fulton, is a healthy uh, 
Peoria Public Schools, which is our largest school district, but all five of the school districts to serve the people of Peoria. Um, that's where we cultivate the talents of those who will be in the 21st century workforce and who will solve the problems long after uh, I'm gone and probably even Peter, although he might live to be forever. I, I don't know, however old you're gonna be. But Peoria Public Schools is so critical. And my opponent has been very, very critical of the growth cell strategy that previous councils used going back to Mayor Jim Maloof. But without that growth cell strategy, we would have been landlocked. And that's what's happened to District 150. And that's one of the reasons Dunlap has roughly half the number of pupils that Peoria Public Schools has, because Peoria Public Schools couldn't grow uh, out north. And that was a very bad decision that was made, uh, compliments to state lawmakers, as related to the Richwoods Township annexation. So we must grow our city. We cannot be sclerotic. We have to grow it and we have to develop it. And we must never forget that that area north of Ward Drive has been built on the backs of the people in the uh, older heritage neighborhoods. But by the same token, I do not want to hear the council members who preside north of Ward Drive complaining about the resources that are needed to the south because we helped build that new city out there, which has added more than it would, than, than it would if we had just left us at 12 square miles. Really, seriously, I don't know that anybody can, with a straight face, advocate for a 12-square-mile city and talk about population growth and Zoom and everything else. It makes no sense. The growth cell strategy worked, and uh, my opponent can continue to talk about that all he wants to, but it worked, and it expanded our city, and I'm sorry that Peoria Public Schools is contained in its ability to grow. I want to stay on that real quick, and then we'll get the question to... Peter, but what would you like to see from an industrial standpoint or from <clears throat> or with Peoria being more focused on the development of economics through cannabis sales and the ancillary businesses that have come along with it? Councilman, can you hear me? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, was that directed at me? I'm sorry, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just a follow-up real quick as far as, you know, with relation to uh, the cannabis industry, are there any specifics that you would like to see Peoria consider or invest in or maybe even kind of try to recruit when it comes to cannabis and keeping that as a means of economic development in Peoria? Well, I would think that we should be very attuned to the manner in which the legislation was written. In part, we wanted to uh, ensure that some of the uh, – uh, profits that would be made from the sale of legalized cannabis would go to help uh, the underprivileged and the people who have been punished in the past for very frivolous uh, offenses involving cannabis. And I think that's important that we do that. And I think Governor Pritzker has led the way and our um, General Assembly in that regard. But I will tell you this, as an experienced council member, it is very, very tricky when you start talking about introducing a cannabis dispensary into any one of our districts. It has to be done with an eye for what the neighborhood can accept and because we just can't impose things. And, you know, we, we've been moving along fairly well without a lot of controversy. So I think we need to just stay the course and continue with uh, what the state law allows us to do in, in our uh, 50, 48 square mile city. Thank you. Uh, Peter, any questions? 
Can you repeat the question, please, Mark? Repeat it, no problem. Uh, Pure Public Schools has received more than $800 million from cannabis sales as a part of the Restore, Reinvest, and Renew plan. With that being said, being the former whiskey capital of the world, is cannabis an industry that Pure should be taking a more aggressive approach on for economic development? I think people who have heard of me before probably know where I'm going to go with this because I was the only council uh, candidate in the last election who was vocal about decriminalizing marijuana. Uh, I thought it was a shame that uh, while we knew we were on the path to legalization, it was still legal for us to uh, charge hefty fines for people carrying just very small amounts of weed. now, uh, you know, and, and when I ran on that position, a lot of folks called, used the word that I'm being called by my opponent sometimes. They called me radical. And now, uh, now folks uh, understand the, the value of regulating what used to be an underground market and uh, reallocating the profits from that into our communities. Um, when we look at the profits that we generate, we have to be mindful of who has been harmed by its criminalization in the past. So I think as a city, we need to be looking for individuals who uh, either have um, served time or have felonies and ensure that they, th- those felonies are um, being uh, removed and that uh, when, they can, when, it's, when it can be uh, expunged and um, work to support those who have been harmed by the war on drugs in the past. And if there's more money than that, then it should be applied in an equitable way. And equity means taking a look at what are the needs of a certain neighborhood uh, or, or group of people and providing them resources or support that is in relation to their needs. And those needs are often based on historical facts uh, and historical wrongs. And when we talk about historical wrongs, you know, I think we could have a question just dedicated to the growth cell strategy of the city. But I take issue with the idea that uh, you know, the, that we benefited as a city from the developments north of war. I went down to the county clerk's office and I pulled up the deeds for the homes that were built in the Knollcrest subdivision. And for those of you who don't know, it's not in the second district, but it's just north of War Memorial. And in the deeds of those homes, uh, it said straight up that this house shall not be sold to anyone other than that of the Caucasian race. So yeah, we had a growth cell strategy that benefited some people, but it didn't benefit all people. So when we now are dealing with more potholes to fill and more roads to plow and the same number of people footing the bill, it sure doesn't seem like that investment now has made sense in retrospect. And some of the cities that are are on the best financial footing were able to keep their density and restrict their sprawl. I, this is a, the, a common uh, common knowledge across the country that sprawl has led to unsustainable growth in cities. This isn't you know something that I dug up and am advocating on myself. In fact, we've had consultants show the data to uh, to, to uh, elected members of uh, city hall. And so, to I think we could keep going down that, and I'd love to have that discussion because it's worth having. We should know why we're in this hole that we're in. Um, but when it comes to cannabis, I think we should support that industry. We were the whiskey city partly because we have some of the most fertile land in the country here, and we should be taking advantage of that to regulate uh, an economy 
that rights some of our historical wrongs. And I'd love to see, uh, you know, Peoria be known as the cannabis capital of the world. And I want to ask you the same question I asked um, uh, Councilman for the follow-up. Are there any specific ancillary type businesses? A lot of people think about dispensaries immediately when we talk about the cannabis industry, but we know we got, you, you got jars, you got security, security, you got technology, you got growth spots. Is there anything specific that you'd like to see going on in Peoria with related to the industry? You know, there, there's nothing that immediately pops to mind, but I think about, you know, some of the entrepreneurs and innovation we have happening in Peoria. Like you've got natural fiber welding that is finding ways to use organic material plants to mimic synthetic material. It could be cool to create packaging that is organic, but that mirrors a synthetic material that a lot of cannabis is sold in. Uh, and I think we should take stock of what is our expertise and, and what are the ideas of, you know, folks maybe who right now are just working out of their garage or, or working on an idea and try to scale them up. And I know we're going to get into economic development, but that's my philosophy is that we don't have to go poach someone from across the country. I mean, I've, I've recruited people to work here from across the country, but I also know that we have some of the best and brightest here in Peoria. And I would go to them first and say, hey, what do you think? How can we help you scale up your idea? And I'll let Chris go right after this question, because I know he, uh, economic development, we want to get to it. So we're going to sit here and I'm just going to ask both of you guys an open-ended question, uh, starting with Councilman. Just plain and simple, your idea of economic development, how do we spur that here in Peoria from the standpoint we're at right now? Well, first of all, um, we have a great deal of economic growth that has occurred and will continue to occur. I envision Peoria continuing to become a medical colossus, a world-class uh, healing center uh, and research center in combination with our great hospital facilities, uh, the $250 million cancer center going into the East Bluff. And let's not forget, there's only five of these in the country, the Northern Regional Research Lab, where they figured out how to mass produce penicillin, saving the lives of millions and millions of people worldwide and continuing to save lives and heal people. That was done on North University in the heart of the second district, which I've been very proud to serve with the people of the second district who are very smart. And we cannot allow that uh, facility to close. Unfortunately, in the past four years, there are at least two attempts to shut it down. Uh, no thanks to a federal budget proposal. That would have been disastrous because that becoming an integral part of making Peria a global biomanufacturing hub uh, that can do genome research, that can find uh, new uh, antidotes for mutant viruses that might come up that we can't even begin to contemplate now, that will put us on the cutting edge. That doesn't mean we won't continue to have heavy manufacturing and industrial jobs because we will and we will cultivate that. But I think our future is in the professional technical area to a great extent. And I said it back when I first ran for office, and believe it or not, I didn't make it the first time I ran, Peter. I ran for mayor in 1993, and uh, Mayor Maloof had something to say about that. But uh, I could even see then that the future of Peoria, uh, and, and it's been borne out, is in the medical arena. And it's our number one employer now. And so we need to continue to cultivate in that direction. And also, this is something that we're missing. And Peter, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sorry the Bloomberg grant ran out. I really wish we had 
the innovation team still. And I told the manager that, but I was only one and I, we needed to have six to continue to fund that when the grant ran out. But it is very important that we, uh, as a city, uh, realize that even though we don't like to pay taxes, because of a settlement pursuant to the Clean Water Act that was passed uh, under a president by the name of Nixon, you won't remember him, Peter, I barely do, but anyway, we had a Clean Water Act which made us stop throwing all kinds of filth into our river uh, where we have sensitive areas. And we have just settled, Peoria City Council has settled uh, this lawsuit and it started out being a quarter of a billion dollar lawsuit against our people, compliments of the EPA and enforcing that Clean Water Act. And we now have a settlement with a consent decree uh, down to about $110 million. What does that mean? This council and previous councils stuck to its guns. We even litigated to be sure the EPA would allow us to do a fix in this city a la the green model style, making Perry one of the greenest cities in the country. And this happened with the urging of the people in District 2, the great people of District 2, who have been not asleep at the switch, but telling its leadership what it wants. And that's going to mean lots of head of household jobs, labor union jobs, prevailing wage jobs, rebuilding our infrastructure in District 2 and elsewhere, all of the green mode. We started with the rain gardens up on West Main, as you know, Main and University Street. That was a template for a lot of this. We had to prove to the EPA that we could contain that water using bias wells and rain gardens and uh, uh, permeable uh, pavements to stop that runoff into the river. And we succeeded in doing that. And we had to fight a sclerotic uh, bureaucracy of the EPA that wanted to hammer us with punitive uh, costs and damage as much as they did South Bend. So there's much to be said good about what's happened recently. I'm sorry we had the pandemic. I'm sorry we don't have the innovation team, but we have to move forward. You, uh, you're, you're, fro you're frozen, Chris. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. Uh, let, let's stick on the... Uh... A pandemic virtual call with <laughs> getting frozen or getting stuck on mute. So it, it, it has to happen you. sometime. Thanks for being just... Take it for the team, Chris. And I want to let the audience know I'm going to yield my notes for you guys' questions. So audience questions are going to come up after Chris. Okay, and, and I will I will try to be brief on on several of these, but uh, I I do want to hit on uh, on some other things related to uh, to the economy, uh, particularly in uh, let let's start broadly. You know, the the city is often hit with the reputation of, of being unfriendly to business that there's there's too much red tape out there. Uh, what do you think needs to be done, particularly? And I I want to ask both of you about this with with a mind toward entrepreneurs in the second district who are overall smaller scale entrepreneurs with, with either either family owned or small businesses. What can the city do to be more business friendly to encourage more of that business development? And let, let me start with Peter and then go to Chuck. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I will answer that question. And I also want to just give some of my like overall philosophy for economic development to, to respond to, to Mr. Graham, who, who just spoke about that. 
And, you know, I don't disagree that we can be the next biotech capital of the world. You know, bring it all. Bring it biotech, cannabis. And I love the Ag Lab. Uh, it has brought so much good. But just saying these things won't make them happen. And for years, Mr. Graev has said these things, but it requires work in between to actually bring them to fruition. And when it comes to the Ag Lab, we know that that's our federal representatives, you know, the, the representative Bustos, the representative Duckworth, that are the ones that are keeping them here. Uh, and, and no council member would oppose losing the Ag Lab in Peoria because it's one of our treasured resources. Someone running for office has to bring new ideas and new perspectives to help grow economic development. And before I get into mine, I'll say one more thing. You know, we have a great resource in the second district. It's the Next Innovation Center. It's on West Main Street. And I reached out to someone who's worked there for a while. And I asked, you know, this is supposed, this is a building that's supposed to be kind of like an incubator. It's office space specifically for engineering and biotech. They have hardly seen over the years, not just during the pandemic, but over the years, more than 40% of their office space filled. So it's one thing to advocate for this, but I've got a background as a community organizer. I'm gonna be pounding the street, pounding the pavement and recruiting companies to actually locate to the tons of office space that we already have. I'm gonna be doing that to build uh, more merchant associations. Uh, you know, Mr. Grabe has overseen the dwindling of the West Main Merchants Association, which, used to, uh, which was once one of the most powerful merchants associations, in, not only in the second district, but in the city. You know, we need someone who's gonna do the work to build these uh, ideas out, not just talk about them uh, and, 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 you know, uh, uh, say something, but actually do the work to get it done. Uh, and I think the fact that the Next Innovation Center is more empty than it is full is proof in the pudding that it's not enough just to say something. And so um, I just wanted to respond to sort of that general philosophy of economic development and, and what my opponent is saying in terms of growing the economic development, because I, I'm just not seeing it happen. Uh, and, and it's been, you know, uh, quite a while that, that he's been talking about it. But I look at economic development this way. You know, it, you're right, Chris. In the second district, it's small scale. And when I worked for the city, I organized uh, a small scale development workshop. And what it did was it empowered residents who, li who lived in the neighborhood to make small changes, small improvements to their storefronts or to their homes. And it takes someone who's not driven by making the most profit possible, but that's driven by improving the quality of place of, the, of their neighborhood, of the buildings that they walk by every day. And because of that workshop, we had a number of entrepreneurs that started their own development businesses. Some of them that have invested tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on West Main Street to improve their buildings. I would do more things like this. And I think it should be hosted and supported by the city. But again, as a someone with a background in community organization, I will make sure that those workshops happen and that those, that education happens to empower residents to become entrepreneurs. Uh, you, you know, whether it's with city staff or not. Um, I also, I, I worked at the city and I would hear from building inspectors that uh, someone would come to them with a business plan and they would, uh, um, uh, they would lay out what they want to do in their restaurant, say whatever. And um, the building inspector would know that, okay, if you put your oven there and you put the deep fryer there, you're going to need sprinklers and that's going to cost $70,000. And, you know, I don't know about you, but most, 
entrepreneurs don't have $70,000 laying around. So the plan would be rejected and uh, the person would maybe find another community to uh, start their business or more often just wouldn't start their business. I was so frustrated that we have built a culture at City Hall that um, gets to no rather than trying to get to yes. So what I would advocate is that when plans are submitted, that city staff would have to be required to, uh, if, if it's reasonably possible, to provide an alternative and that we build legal structures in place so that uh, we don't assume more liability for that. Because what building inspectors were pretty reasonably afraid of is that if they said, you know what, maybe instead of having three deep fryers in a row, you can start with making sandwiches. And that means you won't have to install sprinklers. City staff are afraid to make those recommendations because the, the leadership has created this culture of fear in City Hall. We have so many entrepreneurs that are ready to open up and grow their businesses. And we have city staff that are not empowered to do so. Uh, alongside with requiring those alternatives, I would look at the permit fees and the regulations and try to ease them without compromising life safety for first-time developers and small-scale developers. Because these are folks who don't have an army of lawyers. They're, they're not Target. They're not Walmart. They can't afford to look through, you know, they talked about a council last night, the hundreds and hundreds of pages, pages of building code. And so they need to be provided with extra support to, uh, and, and maybe some uh, 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 lowering of fees so that they can get their business off the ground and maybe phase in those requirements over time as they start generating cash flow. Um, you know, and that's, that's my philosophy is that we need to look at development from an equitable perspective. And I'll just finish on this back to the growth cells is that for a long time, city council has seen economic development at all costs. And the thing is that there are, when you look at it that way, there are always costs and they're usually borne by the most marginalized, the poorest among us, and historically by Peorians of color. I think we need to take an equitable development approach that when there's a developer, uh, a large scale developer that's asking for subsidies or benefiting from city resources, that they're required to sit down with the community, uh, the neighborhood that they're developing in and uh, incorporate the needs of that neighborhood into their final development. These are called community benefit agreements and they've been done in other cities and they ensure that out of town, big scale developers can't make a profit on the backs of the neighborhoods that they want to build their business in. Okay. I want to, I want to ask you, and, and we appear to have lost the, lost the oh. councilman here and, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to get him, uh, get him back very shortly. Uh, but while we wait for him, I want to, want to follow up with, with you on one thing you said, and, and I, I'm going to ask you to be specific here. You, you said the city leadership has, has created a culture of fear in, in being able to, to resolve some of those, those potential problems. And I, I want to ask you exactly what it is that you're talking about, and whether that's a, a specific individual or specific department that, that you can, can name. I, I, I think, you know, if you're going to say that a culture like that has been created, you've, you've got to explain, you know, what it is that you're talking about and quantify that. Yeah, culture is hard to measure and quantify, but uh, when you're working in City Hall uh, and you talk to people and they're afraid of doing something, then uh, that is evidence that it exists. I would say we have uh, a legal department uh, and I, I, I don't know, you know whose fault this is, but sometimes it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's about whether we can improve it. We have a legal department that um, has been asked 
to see itself as only reducing liabilities, not as empowering residents and city staff to do things that maybe are at first are thought to be unimaginable or aspirational. And so I believe our legal department shouldn't only protect us, but it should also empower us so that when city staff say, I'm afraid to help someone because I think uh, we could get sued or I could lose my job, then it should be the legal department that comes in and says, let's find a way that you can empower that business owner, empower that entrepreneur, and that you're not afraid of losing your job and that we're not afraid as a city of getting sued as a result of it. Okay. And, and Councilman Graham, I, I sense from your body language, you, you have some response you want to give to that. And I want to give you the time to respond to that as well as talk about what, what you think the city might need to do to, to deal with, with red tape that, that might inhibit small business growth and development in the district. Well, my opponent engages in so many scurrilous attacks and so many rhetorical devices called hit and run that I don't know which one to answer, so I just better stick with the facts. First of all, uh, we have moved a great deal to make this city more business friendly. But Mr. Kovac, one thing that's not gonna happen when I'm sitting in the council chair is we're not gonna let business roll over the neighborhoods when they wanna do a development. And that's what Tuesday night was all about. When we arrived at a way of doing a development of the War Memorial Drive and University Parcel uh, owned by Mark Weston and Kirk Johnson and did it uh, consistent with the needs of the neighborhood. Two great neighborhoods sit right next to that plot of land. It's called Biltmore Heights, in case you are not familiar with that, and North Florence Bigelow. And I involved the people who lead those neighborhood associations in a mature discussion of how that development would be done, compatible with the best interests of the neighborhood. Just because businessmen walk into City Hall and say, I've got millions of dollars, doesn't mean this councilman's gonna roll over and say, I'm gonna forget about all these people who have raised their kids in these neighborhoods and spent their millions of dollars building uh, their homes and their lives there. So you are fostering uh, a, a canard that City Hall continues to be hostile to business. And it has changed a great deal. Years ago, it was sclerotic, but we've had changes under Director Black. And I refuse to let you continue to make these uh, scurrilous charges. If you would give one specific charge, then maybe it would be worth looking into, and I'd be happy to look into it. But I'm not rolling over every time a businessman walks in and says, I wanna do this and that to this neighborhood it's not going to happen. They've got to do it with the neighborhood. And I'm proud of the outcome of last night. We approved a credit union on the far northwest part of that parcel. But guess what? Every time they want to develop the rest of the parcel, it's going to have to go through the process, which you don't like. That'd be the Planning and Zoning Commission and staff review and then to the consul. And we're not writing blank checks for business people. Sorry, it's not going to happen. The neighborhoods are too important. And if it's one thing I am, that is a councilman who listens very closely to what the neighbors are saying because they have an interest too. We like business, we love business, but there's no reason why we can't do both together, uh, make the neighborhood thrive as well as businesses grow. Could I respond to that? 
I, I I'll, I'll let you respond to it in a second. Uh, I I want to want to ask if if Chuck, if you have any additional specifics on on small business growth and development, what else you think the city ought to be doing to foster that? Well, I think we're doing all we can do right now, uh, given our budget constraints to foster it. Uh, but in the final analysis, you know, it does come down to budget. And on a, it may not sound sexy, but our primary responsibility is something called core basic services. That would be police, fire and public works. And, you know, never in a thousand years will I call for the dismantling of the Peoria Police Department, all of the Minneapolis model, as my opponent has. That is absolutely absurd, absolutely ridiculous. We need to continue to put more police on the streets to make our neighborhood safer and augment that with better delivery of mental health services. So that's what, what I imagine. Uh, we, we talk about reimagining things. Well, let's talk about the real world and what is necessary in our city and in District 2, a district that's second to none. Okay, Peter, you wanted a quick response to that, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you to quick. Uh, yeah. so I don't want to go back and forth too much on this. Yeah, and I, I just want to clarify because I think that Mr. Graham might have been disconnected while I was making my point, and so when he was reconnected, I think maybe he, he uh, didn't hear what I had said. Because I was actually making the point that um, when a developer comes to town and asks us for help, for a subsidy, for resource, or takes advantage of an incentive, that they should actually be required to meet with the community. And what that does, and I think this is an important difference because I'll give it to him. You know, Mr. Graham is known for responding to his phone calls and to his emails. But here's the thing. If those, the number of phone calls and emails are not going down, if the issues our community is facing are not going down, then we need more than Band-Aid solutions. And the solution that I was laying out is called community benefit agreements. And it would be a policy of the city that would require developers to sit down with neighborhoods and ensure that their needs are being addressed. And so uh, maybe it was when Mr. Grabe was disconnected, but I didn't suggest that developers should just have their way with neighborhoods. In fact, I've been saying that I support residents building up their own neighborhoods. When folks come in from outside of the neighborhood, that they're required to sit down. And not just based on whether I can get neighbors together, but based on that's how the city does it, should do it everywhere. In the second district, in every district, that developers who are coming in with gobs of money need to meet the needs of the residents in the neighborhoods that they're developing in. So I, I'm kind of... Uh, confused about what uh, uh, Mr. Graham was critiquing because I'm actually proposing a systemic solution uh, to the issue. And you can ask almost any business owner, and I've talked to business owners in the second district, and, you know, it's nothing against our staff. Uh, it's nothing against, um, you know, the city of Peoria, but almost any business owner will tell you that it's hard to do things with city hall. And so I'm not saying, you know, Hey, you know, fire these people. They've done a terrible job. I'm saying, I think I've got some ideas on how to make things better. Yeah, but now you, you did specifically say earlier that, that you thought city legal was part of the problem though. Uh, I said city legal can empower the solution. Okay. You, all right. Let, let me, let me move on from there to uh, 
to this this other other specific question about uh, about a part of the district that we have not really talked about and and for as long as I've been in in at the paper there there's been discussion about working to revitalize the Sheridan Triangle area and and I want to know from from both of you in in particular about that space what more the city can do there whether it it's Development incentives, whether it's street alignment that, that can be done differently, what you know, what what can be done there to help that area stabilize and, and become more prosperous? And Peter, I'm going to start with you, then go to the councilman, and we're going to wrap up the my questions and go to to Facebook questions after that. Peter, yeah, I think you know if we were to implement some of the solutions that I'm advocating for, some of them I didn't even get around to saying today, like public safety opportunity zones that uh, prioritize resources in areas that have higher crime rates or higher contacts with police. And by uh, directing our economic development staff to focus on small scale development, Sheridan Triangle would be a natural place uh, and a data-based place where those funds would go through incentives. But my, uh, really all the points that I talked about with small scale development, that is sort of tailor-made for the Sheridan Triangle. It's about connecting with the residents in that neighborhood to help them build out their businesses and their business ideas in Sheridan Triangle. And speaking with residents and business owners, how they can scale up. Uh, and, and you know, if a business from out of town wants to come in, then they're welcome too. But uh, I think we've got the potential in the neighborhoods. We just have to make it a little easier for those businesses to start and grow. Okay, Councilman? Well, there's a lot of progress that I guess is hiding in plain sight. Uh, one of the most vibrant corridors in the city is the uh, corridor in the second district. And we'll get to Sheridan in a second, called University Street from Ward Drive down to Forest Hill, one of the biggest generator of sales tax money in the city of Peoria. Uh, we have, thanks to the great work being done by our state lawmakers, about $50 million to revitalize Main Street, Western Street from the top of the hill down to Bradley Park, as well as uh, Knoxville from Penn Terrace on down just north of Ward Drive. That's progress. We have that money. We're going to begin planning with the people in those neighborhoods what we want those quarters to look like. As for the Sheridan Triangle, one of the first things I did after being elected was to go meet with those merchants to see what they wanted with Director Reese and with our economic development people. And some of them were quite happy with what they were doing with their business, but unfortunately some uh, of the folks have retired and moved on. And we had that imminently coming back in 2013-14. I encouraged the formation of a business improvement association. They didn't wanna do that. Uh, but I do believe that if you take a look, I mean, there are great businesses there. I go there for my suits, uh, Tony Gantos, uh, one of the last uh, repairs I've had to furniture uh, was at the upholstery shop, Craig Upholstery. But frankly, they just didn't have the capacity to continue doing it because of health uh, reasons in the family, et cetera. Uh, we did have another uh, firm come in where the old Lippman is to run that. I just bought several hundred dollars worth of furniture there. They drive to Peoria from Ridley to run their business. So yes, there's improvement to be made there. We try to put flowers there as well and decorative ba baskets, but essentially the responsibility of the city is core basic services. And we have fixed Sheridan Road up from basically Florence in the second district all the way down to Peoria High School. Now, Richmond, we just completed a four and a half million dollar stretch 
And I would urge my opponent to go take a look at how beautiful it looks with new sidewalks and curbs in accord with the complete streets model that was passed by the council in 2010. There's never too much we can do to help encourage business. And we do that on a daily basis, but I'm not a magician and I don't have all kinds of money to give people. I'm being challenged just provide core basic services with all the problems we've talked about during this hour or so. And that's what I'm going to concentrate on. And frankly, that's what many of my predecessors concentrated on, including Gary Sandberg, who, and that was his mantra, core basic services. And we're going to continue to deliver in that area. All right. Thank you. And I'm going to toss it back to Mark, who's going to bring us into some questions that, uh, that the audience has for both of you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. So <clears throat> real quick, Audience questions are brought to you by RhondaGuidenTravel.com. Only they give you domestic and international travel with a personal touch. Leave all the planning to RGT. That's RhondaGuidenTravel.com. She just came back from Dubai, so I want to hit her up. Um, so I'm going to, we're going to go from the top to the bottom, but you guys mentioned something, and we're kind of still on economics, so I want to bring this up. Nestor says, how do you avoid situations like the Pierre Marquette? Um, Nancy Reagan had a phrase, just say no. That's it. You just say no. Every time a businessman walks through the door and says he wants to do something, you don't have to roll over and say, oh, please, please do it. Otherwise, we're going to be unbusiness friendly. And by the way, this isn't the first time the hotel operators uh, downtown have hit the council up. I remember one night uh, an attorney for some folks that were trying to get money out of the city council to refurbish the pier. He came in before a council meeting and said, if you don't vote to give us a subsidy to fix up the pier market, I'll make certain you're never reelected. Well, guess what? I was reelected. And these people had the nerve to ask for the money when they were in default on loans for the parking deck. So it's called just saying no. And that means when you go down to city hall, you don't go there because you want to be part of a fraternity or sorority. You go there to represent your constituents, what's in the best interest of your constituents, not only in your district, but for the city. Because if you do what's good for the city, you'll do what's good for your district in the long haul and vice versa. Peter? Yeah, I think this is another example where we really need to be setting a vision for our city. Because one of the reasons I believe that the city went down this path is that it saw its answers in going after big fish, that we want the next cat. We want these huge developments, and it's worth taking huge risks to get them. Well, as I've said tonight, I'm opposed to that. Uh, I'm, I'm setting this vision forward that I hope to bring my colleagues around the horseshoe around, that we should focus on supporting smaller developers, the ones that already live in our city and making small adjustments so that if we take a risk, it's maybe a few hundred or a few thousand dollars and it's not a few million dollars. It's important to bring these visions to the table and have a discussion around them because otherwise it defaults to the status quo, which for a long time has been we're going to benefit as a city if we sprawl north. We're going to benefit as a city if we go after the big fish like Cat or do big projects like the Pierre Marquette. Well, I'm here to actually advocate an alternative that doesn't say 
be anti-development, be anti-business. It just says, let's go after a different type of economic development. And I'm glad that Mr. Gray brought up the West Main Street development because that's another area that I've been proposing a vision that we need to start talking about right now. And that's, this is a, a big win that our state lawmakers uh, won for Peoria. And it's really exciting because we should use West Main Street to uh, be a prime place that folks come in from out of town, but also direct them into the other neighborhoods. So the things that are done on West Main Street should guide visitors to go up University and to go up Sheridan and to go up North so that they're not only spending time there, but they're going and visiting the, our, the other wonderful neighborhoods of the second district. And we should be thinking right now, what are those projects going to entail? The city always does this. It thinks about uh, minority contracts and increasing the percentage of minority contracts. Well, the time to think about which minority businesses and contractors that we'll need for that project is now. And if I were council person, I would be uh, asking public works, you know, who do we think we're gonna need to hire for this project? And how do we build the pipeline so that we can meet our minority contracting goals or exceed those minority contracting goals in the future? That's the type of vision that I'm bringing to this campaign and to the city. Uh, not enough just saying, hey, I, I won't do that. Uh, no to cuts to police, to fire, to big projects. Well, yeah, I would do the same thing, but we need some other sort of alternative that we can advocate for and bring people around. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Scholar says, why did it take all these years to go after your sheriffs and police for their involvement in their Ku Klux Klan human trafficking ring with Taswell and Fulton, not to mention Henry? I'm guessing that is directed towards you, Councilman, given the that you're the incumbent. Um, yeah. I, I guess it's part of the conspiracy theories that, that abound nowadays and the past four years, uh, I guess, continues. I know nothing about such scurrilous charges. Yeah, um, I can't say that I'm familiar with what this person is asking about either. I understood that was the first question, so we're kind of going backwards. Uh, <clears throat> this one comes from Eric. Uh, he says, for Councilman Graham, what would you do differently than you have in the past 20 years on the council, why now? I think we should have been uh, beating the drum much harder um, to get six votes to do more to restore mental health services for our people uh, after Zeller Zone Center closed. I do believe it's a huge miss. Unfortunately, I can't reach out and make the county board do what I want them to do, but I believe it is a huge miss for us not to use Headington Oaks for the delivery of mental health services. After all, the people voted overwhelmingly to build a replacement for Bellwood. And for us to relinquish that facility with all the mental health needs and not consider that as a possibility, I think is a mistake. But then again, that's a county board decision. And I have advocated to county board members about that uh, use. So I think that's one thing that I would have would have pressed on even stronger, especially with what's happened in the past few years. Okay, <clears throat> and this uh, question comes from Alexis, and this is directed for Peter. She says, in response to your intro, what plan or strategy do you have to recruit young people to the city? Peoria is a great place to live. 
uh, and you can you can name the the you know reasons why it's great to live. You know, it's affordable. Um, you know, it's easy to get around. I mean, it's it's relatively small, and you can ride your bike or you can drive your car. Um, uh, in most places, there's a bus route that can serve you, although we can improve on that. Uh, there's great entertainment, the riverfront market. Okay, all those things. But here's the thing. I don't talk about, I don't start with any of that when I talk to folks from out of town um, because they can get that in other places. It's the same thing when we talk about economic development. We've got the same incentives that every city, every other city does, and it's not what's going to cause a business to be in Peoria. When I was recruiting for Peoria Public Schools, I would talk to young people and I would say, do you want to be a part of a school district that's reimagining public education, that is applying a racial equity lens to what it's doing, that is uh, being a leader in what education can look like so that uh, someone's zip code and the color of their skin doesn't determine their outcomes in life? Do you want to be working uh, under innovative and bold leadership with some of the best educators in the country? By the way, we've got great nightlife in Peoria. Uh, we've got a river. We've got the largest and oldest park district. And, you know, if you really do want to get out of town for a little bit, you can drive to Chicago or St. Louis or Indianapolis in two and a half hours. And see, I think that's reverse of how a lot of other people sell the city. They say, well, you can get out of the city if you want to, which leads people to think, well, why would I want to leave Peoria? And then you say, uh, well, you can go to a concert. Well, I can go to a concert in any city. But people buy into wanting to become part of a story of a community. And that's why I advocate for aspirational ideas. I don't advocate for holding the line and doing the same thing we've always done. I advocate that we should be a model city for the rest of the country. You know, we haven't gotten into sustainability, but it's a big issue for the young, younger folks, millennials, my generation and Gen Z, the generation after me. This is one of the top issues is climate change and sustainability. Yet look at City Hall. It hardly speaks of climate change and sustainability and we don't have articulated specific goals. But more Americans live in places like Peoria than in big cities like New York or Chicago or small rural towns. So if Peoria can advocate for uh, policies and processes and programs and a culture that is sustainable and takes on climate change, well, we could actually impact the country. And if we impact the country, we can impact the world. So don't you wanna to move to Peoria if, the, if we're advocating for those things to be a part of a city that's doing something that no, nobody else is? But you know, first, uh, it would help to elect folks who are actually advocating for something new and something aspirational. And it helps to be able to look at city council and see someone who is closer to your age and might understand the issues that are more important to you. Uh, I believe there's a lot of wisdom in uh, the older generations. And that's why I've really enjoyed serving on my neighborhood associations, because let's admit it, they're the ones holding up our neighborhoods. But we also need the new generation to bring in a fresh idea and a fresh perspective. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, uh, I don't have, I actually don't have mean things to say about Mr. Graham. I think he's a passionate individual who cares about the community. But sometimes I wonder why someone who has been uh, in politics since 1993, I apologize for getting that wrong, um, is still running instead of cultivating the next generation and supporting them and nurturing them in bringing some new ideas to the table. 
So all that is to say, Alexis, uh, connect me with anybody that you, you know from out of town, and I'll get them to move here as quickly as I can. Thank you, uh, Peter. Chris, do you just want to uh, take a couple of minutes? You're muted. Second time tonight. Oh, uh, yeah. Let, let me uh, let me go ahead and uh, and start with uh, with this one on here that uh, that Allison Walsh asks um, that uh, that I think encapsulates this question fairly fairly broadly. Uh, looking back to when the the Renaissance Park Community Garden was destroyed, leaving many second district residents and volunteers feeling crushed and left out of the conversation between city and private property owner. What could the city have done better in that situation? Uh, and Councilman, I want to let you respond to that, uh, and then uh, then Peter as well. Well, ultimately, this was a private property uh, question. The entity that owned that station for many years was bought, and the new owner has plans to build a new uh, service station there with grocery store, and working with uh, our community development staff to have a much better um, store at that location, putting the gas pumps behind a new expanded store. Now, this is not a communist society, and contrary to what people may think, the city cannot compel someone uh, who has a parcel of property from using it as he wants to use it. I think we should be appreciative of the fact that for many, many years, part of that property was used by Wren Park, and I think that's that's been huge. But unfortunately, during the pandemic, a lot of things were happening at that site that was not consistent with the mission of Wren Park, and the private property owner wanted his property back. It's that simple. One of the things that I facilitated and wanted to be sure that we did was preserve any property that belonged to Renaissance Park, and we had it picked up, and then we contacted the president of Renaissance Park, uh, if they wanted to pick up any items that were there. Frankly, there was a lot of stuff dragged in there toward the end that may not have even belonged to Renaissance Park. But this is a country where a free enterprise system, where the private property owner has the right to make a decision. And if something is happening on a site that belongs to the private property owner that is injurious to the business, then that person has the right, the responsibility to stop it. So I think that's it in a nutshell. Okay, Peter? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's helpful to, to provide some context for this question because some people might not know the history of this community garden. Maybe you drove by it in the past, but you didn't know what it was. In 2012, it was built and maintained for nearly uh, a decade until it was destroyed. In 2019, uh, uh, Mr. Grayeb and other council people recognized Renaissance Park Community Association for beautification efforts, including the community garden. Uh, you know, if you look up that council meeting, I was actually invited. I wasn't, I'm, I wasn't part of the leadership of the organization, but I had been one of the volunteers. So picture this, you know, in July of 2019, I'm standing in city hall in the city council chambers being uh, congratulated in, uh, 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 for the work that you know, a whole group of people had done to beautify a neighborhood. And a few months later, the pandemic hits and the garden 
um, has less programming as per public health guidelines than it had in the past. Just a few months later, all of a sudden, everyone who's involved with this garden finds out that it has been raised to the ground. I got calls from uh, both the leadership of the organization and neighbors just frantically saying, what's going on? And uh, in Mr. Graves' television commercial, he, he says a few things. He says that radical interests are coming to uh, you know, hurt our communities. And uh, I, I just wonder what in my campaign and my platform is, is so radical. Um, and then he also says he responds to constituents. And yet in this instance, you have uh, a, a, an elected member responding not to all the constituents, maybe the constituents that hold the most sway or power with him, but not the folks who had volunteered in the garden, not the folks who led the organization and that he had praised just a few months earlier. And so I will commit that when an issue comes up, uh, it doesn't matter if you have a home, it doesn't matter how much money you make, if an issue is going to impact you, I'm going to talk to you about it and I'm going to bring you into the discussion. And Mr. Grabe, I believe, is rewriting the history because it was not the business owner that was applying the most pressure to have this community garden removed. And even so, that does not justify it being raised to the ground because instead of hiring, yes, taxpayer money being used to clear this garden, and I know a check was sent to the business owner, but we spent money on this issue. Um, whether it's the police, whether it's community development, whether it's GYMAX, we spent money on this issue when we could have gone to the volunteers that built the garden and said, can you help us come up with a solution that works for everyone? And we could have not only uh, satisfied some business owners' interests, uh, but also involved the community in the solution and addressed the underlying causes of why folks who were suffering from addiction or uh, mental health issues or living in poverty were frequenting the garden. Because, you know, uh, I, I think anyone who spends time in that area knows that those folks who are, are still suffering from addiction are still experiencing homelessness and they have found other places to spend their time. And so raising a community garden that had a decade of beautification and culture for a community uh, didn't solve the underlying problem. And I don't believe that anything has been built in its place. Councilman, there was a, a little bit thrown out there by way of allegations. I want to give you a chance if you want to respond to any of that, too. Well, tonight there have been many scurrilous allegations made, always at the expense of someone else. Uh, my statement stands. Uh, there were many stakeholders, uh, and there are many stakeholders on West Main Street, including the West Main merchants and uh, the people who live in the adjacent neighborhoods uh, who are impacted, uh, as well as the uh, gas station operator, operator by folks defecating and urinating uh, on the property, on his property, uh, by the needles that were left there and by the uh, drug sales that were occurring. We had to have the uh, target offender unit up there. So we worked with the uh, gas station operator to remedy that situation. And thank goodness he wants to build a new business, must be business friendly, along West Main Street. So, I mean, all the attempts to uh, revise history and to start a campaign there uh, as if uh, the owner is some uh, odious capitalist and, and I am his uh, tool. It's just ridiculous. It is just extreme nonsense. 
Okay. So uh, that's I, I, I want to go on to, to one more. We're, we're coming up on, on 90 minutes here, and I know Mark has, uh, Mark has one more round he wants to take us through tonight before we – we wrap up. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to hit one more question here. Uh, th this is addressed to Councilman Graya, but I, I would like to like to have both of you respond to it. Uh, five years later, uh, after what Marty calls the, the main and university intersection fiasco, he says we are still experiencing traffic flow, speeding and littering from traffic racing through the uplands. When will we get some relief like one way streets you have on High Street? Ha, high Street one way. There are people that want to see two ways on High Street. Uh, you know, uh, that's one thing. You can never please all the people all the time. I, I would remind uh, Mr. Mitchell that the West Main uh, University uh, intersection was rebuilt with input from all 10 of the neighborhood associations and the West Main merchants. Just as the new Main Street, with the funds that we have now, uh, Main Street as it exists now was last late in 1947, will be built in collaboration with all those great neighborhoods around Main Street and the West Main merchants. Could we please everybody who went to the colloquia as to what they wanted that to look like? No. But guess what? We haven't had any Bradley student thrown 20 to 30 feet out of his sandals and killed at that intersection since the remake. And it is an entrance to Bradley University, and it's one of our most heavily crossed intersections in the city bar none and a zip code 61606 that is one of the most densely populated zip codes in the entire state outside of chicagoland so we did this with our neighbors i didn't do this our neighbors met at bradley bradley opened up some of their uh, facilities so that we could uh, imagine reimagine what main street could look like and we're going to do that pretty soon and I envision that the neighbors are going to be saying they want wider, wider sidewalks, they want more outdoor dining, all kinds of cool things with the storefronts along Main Street. And uh, we're, we're going to see that our best days are ahead. Okay. And Peter, I want to, want to give you a chance to address the question, too, and then toss it back to Mark afterward. Yeah, I think there... I'm, I'm excited for the redevelopment of West Main Street as well. And uh, I, I think... We can keep some of the uh, elements of that intersection that have kept people safe while also making it uh, a, a place where traffic flows more smoothly. And I think you can do that with uh, changing the traffic signals by um, making uh, bike lanes integrated into it so that uh, cars don't line up behind bikes and bikes can safely travel through it as well. So I think there are some ways that we can improve that to ease some of that congestion. And in the meantime, uh, while I worked at the city, I advocated for what's called tactical urbanism. And this is um, really cheap things that the public works department can do to address uh, neighborhood concerns and test the viability of long-term projects. And this is something we should be doing more of across the city. When you look at like the planters at Maine and Sheridan or Columbia Terrace and University, those are examples of tactical urbanism. Uh, putting in a crosswalk or changing the color of the crosswalk, that's also tactical urbanism. It's when we 
don't spend millions of dollars on a project, but we spend a few thousand maybe or a few hundred to see how it impacts the traffic flow and the pedestrian flow, and then make those larger scale infrastructure decisions based on data. So I, I'm advocating that we do more tactical urbanism and that as we rethink West Main, of course, it has to be resident driven, but I'm advocating that we uh, keep the elements that uh, keep pedestrians safe while also really pushing for ways that traffic does not get backed up very far and people aren't af uh, afraid of Maine and University and thus going through other surrounding neighborhoods. Okay, thank you. I'm going to toss it over to, to Mark. We're at, at 90 minutes, so I know we're going to go to the lightning round soon. Yes, we are going to get there soon. And in fact, if need be, I'll shorten it. What I want to do, though, I want to make sure that we get to these audience questions and, and at least finish as many as we can. So I'm going to throw a couple more at you guys for the people watching that may be in District 2, and then we'll get to, a, <clears throat> we'll get to the lightning round. Uh, real quick, this comes from Katie, and she says, what have you done or will you do to include citizens with disabilities in our community and the decisions made in our community? Is that question for me, Mark? Yeah, shoot. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with you, Councilman, then we'll go over to Peter. Well, I think we're going to continue to follow all the laws that we have on the books to uh, meet the needs of the disabled. You know, it doesn't take very much to figure out how important that is. Uh, I've had a couple of friends who have recently injured their, their feet or broken a finger or whatever, and how dramatically that can change your whole life. So we do need to be a handicap accessible society. As a, and uh, so we've made great strides in that regard and we need to continue to do what we can. And any suggestions that uh, my residents might have or the people in District 2 would have or in the city, uh, we're open to hear to see what we can do to improve things. Um, and I think as we do, for example, our new uh, roads and sidewalks, we have to become uh, compliant with our federal laws, and we should be. We should be happy to be compliant uh, with some of the new rules that would allow uh, our handicapped to get around much better. And Peter, and I appreciate you guys if you can keep it short just so we can get through them. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I know. Sometimes I talk too long. Uh, well, I, I've mentioned that I want to put equity at the forefront of what we do as a city. And, and although I often mention race when I when I say equity, it also uh, includes individuals, citizens with disabilities. Uh, what I've done already is, um, you know, this is a small thing, but when I create videos that explain my stances on issues for social media, I ensure they're captioned. So that uh, even the hearing impaired uh, have an ability to to learn and engage with me on the issues. Um, I also, if elected, um, I want to ensure that I'm empowering residents to address their own issues. Um, I don't want to be the one who always solves all their problems. Uh, for example, I want to make sure that they know how to use Peoria Cares, which is an app that you can use to report issues in your neighborhood, so that if they see uh, you know, a wheelchair ramp or something on their sidewalk that isn't functional or a piece of their sidewalk is, is missing or broken and so they can't get around, that they can actually uh, help solve that problem themselves. And I would consider it a success if you know, everyone felt empowered to uh, address their own issues and that our government worked efficiently so that those issues were addressed as quickly as possible and that I didn't receive you know, hundreds of calls or emails. And as long as I do, I'll answer those, but I wanna address the systemic issues of citizens maybe not knowing how to address those issues themselves. Okay, and this question comes from Hannah. Uh, Hannah says, can you explain 
why can you explain your understanding of why you think defund the police became a rallying cry last year as you understand it what issues do many PRs have with our police force uh we'll, we'll stick with peter on this one sure so uh, you know this past summer we had a racial reckoning as a country and and as a city i mean we had one of the biggest protests in downtown peoria uh i think in, in recent memory and it's because of the truth of how individuals have been, uh, Peorians of color and people of color across the country have uh, borne the brunt of institutional racism. And when I say that, it means when institutions have favored some groups over others, usually white people over people of color. And this summer, a lot of uh, focus was was uh, on police brutality because of the murder of George Floyd, and that's that's well put. And so I think different uh, groups promoted different ideas. Um, and I saw it as my responsibility over the summer to promote and, and uplift the voices of, of people who have been marginalized. I uh, shared you know, articles uh, uh, from black activists across the country. I also shared uh, the reforms that Young Revolution, the group that led the protests downtown were asking for. And then I also just, in, Ask people to uh, read The Traveler, join the NAACP, listen to Strictly Hip Hop, expose yourself to the, and I'm talking to white people, expose yourself to ideas that maybe you were blocking out, but now you're open to. And it's important that some of the things that I shared are in conflict with one another, because I wasn't laying out a, 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 a platform for running for office. I was uplifting the voices of people for so long in our community have felt voiceless. Uh, and so I think that's where defund the police came from. But really, the, the thing is that that phrase itself is used by such different people. Some people think it means uh, getting rid of police altogether. Some people think it means reallocating the funding of the police department. So I stay away from it because it's not useful uh, to actually talking about what solutions will move Peoria forward. And uh, Councilman, same question. Well, I think that uh, we we should welcome peaceful protest. That's a cornerstone of a democratic uh, republic. But lawlessness is unacceptable, always unacceptable. Whether it's caravans going through our city last uh, summer, uh, burning, uh, breaking uh, store windows, uh, terrorizing people who live in our neighborhoods by going 60 to 70 miles per hour down the street. Uh, there's no room for that. And we must respect uh, the laws of our country. And it doesn't matter what side of the political continuum you're on. We want the police because they help ensure that nobody can bully somebody else who is innocent. And we wanted more police on January the 6th. So we cannot have lawlessness on either side and expect to have a decent, humane society. And I am very, very uh, confident that we will have reforms that are very needed, not only in uh, the state of Illinois, but also uh, in our country because of what happened uh, in Minneapolis. But defunding the police, Mr. Kovac, no. We're not going to defund the police in Peoria. We're not going to lay off police. We barely have 200 now. A number of years ago, we had 250 police. And at some point, 
staffing matters just as it did in my occupation called education when we expected teachers to perform and get the same results with 38 or 40 kids in a classroom versus 18. So we have to respect our men and women in blue who are out there every single day working for us. And we need the reforms to ensure that, that we don't have any type of bullying going on uh, under the uh, color of government. And, and it's just, I think, pretty simple. And second to last one, looks like Marty said, uh, what are your ideas for partnering with Bradley to build businesses on Maine and Western? Uh, to build what now, uh, Mark? Uh, businesses, uh, what are your ideas with partnering with Bradley to build businesses on Maine and Western? Maine and Western. Bradley is our fourth biggest employer. We involve Bradley um, as we should. The city involves all of our employers and our neighborhoods in any discussion. And a lot of this, too, will revolve around what Adam Smith says we should do. That's the power of the free enterprise system. Uh, people will see some opportunity there based on the zoning that's there. But again, when a business person walks into City Hall and says, I want to build a, a leper colony somewhere at uh, Western and Maine, it doesn't mean uh, the city council has to have six votes to do that. It has to make sense for the neighborhood. So there's a lot of stuff that the city council doesn't decide other than the basics, providing the core basic services and the zoning codes that are important and building codes, I might add. I was afraid the other night one of our council members would suggest uh, we uh, wouldn't need building codes, but thank goodness he didn't end up in that ditch. And Peter, same question. Yeah, well, I'm going to do it the same way I'm, I'm doing, running my campaign right now. I have a, uh, an, inter, an amazing intern on our campaign, uh, Lauren Bacon, who's a Bradley student. I have many volunteers and, and team members uh, who are Bradley students, and they make our campaign better. And it's, it's kind of amazing that I often think, you know, if Bradley students voted as a block and turned out they would decide city elections. And so I've made it a point during my campaign to go to students and ask them, what is the Peoria that you wanna live in five, 10, 15, 20 years from now? What are the things that you care about? Because you know, it's one thing, I've got my life experience and, and, and how I've lived, but I wanna advocate for those who are gonna be around for, you know, as Mr. Grabe was saying, I probably won't live forever. So after I pass, that uh, Peoria looks like the place that they still wanna live in. Well, I hope you both live forever. And this is the last question I from the- I don't want to. <laughs> this is the last question from the audience. We'll go to the lightning round. Uh, appreciate everybody watching and tuning in to State of Pure. We actually haven't lost anybody at all. So uh, looks like some people here are engaged and maybe, again, a lot from too. Alexander says, can someone work full-time and be a full-time council representative? Will Mr. Kobach respond to phone calls like Mr. Grayup does? Yeah, I, I commit to, to uh, responding to all phone calls and all emails as expeditiously as possible. And uh, I'll do wh whatever you know it takes in my personal life to make that happen. Uh, it would be my first priority. And Councilman, if you want to take the first part of that question, can someone work full time and still be a full time council representative? Um, I, I would say um, yes, uh, but it's becoming more and more difficult, especially as we have these great building projects that are about to commence uh, that will reshape the heart of our city and district too, uh, as we do the planning with the neighborhoods, et cetera. It, it, it is very time consuming. And I will tell you, when I got into the job, 
being an at-large in 95. And I took six years off because I didn't feel like running again in 2007. So uh, believe me, I haven't been a councilman since 1995. There were six years when I wasn't there and came back to run for the district seat in 2013. But you find out very quickly that there are things that you may think shouldn't be on the minds of your constituents. But guess what? They are the ones we need to listen to. And when they call about what might seem to be a seemingly um, insignificant thing, like speeding on their street or whatever, we need to respond. Or what Mr. Mitchell was talking about, uh, the traffic into the uplands. And I would say this, anytime we can get a consensus to, as we redesign Main Street, for example, to maybe make some different uh, change at Maine University and get people to sign off on it after a healthy debate, we're more than willing to do it. But uh, yeah, we have to listen to people. We have to we can't just shut our phones off and not look at our emails because it's going to inconvenience it. When that dog has been killed in front of the house and nobody has shown up to get it, that means something to somebody. And you better think that that's important because it is. You're not necessarily a philosopher king. You, you also have to deal with the specifics and the, and the travail of everyday life that our constituents find uh, in their lives as well. Sounds good. Thank you both, gentlemen. And we're going to head to the lightning round and close this out. Uh, just wanted to make sure we got those questions in. But this lightning round is sponsored by McCall Law Offices, PC and Holiday McCall, located at 1225 North North Street, where they focus on personal injury, accidents, family law and criminal defense. Call for a consultation at 309-377-HTLP to put their, uh, their attorneys in your corner. OK, so if you guys have seen this before, then you know what we're doing. <laughs> if you haven't seen this before, Bring it <laughs> then this is what we're doing. So the lightning round is rapid fire questions. Usually it's one person, but last time Chris and I did two people at the same time. So we're going to try it again as well uh, here. And it's either or, or quick answer with the first thought, I guess, that would come to your mind. Okay, um, I'm going to put a minute 20 on there. We shorten the lightning round just a minute, uh, just a bit. So let's see if we can get through it. And we will start with Councilman. Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready, Mark. Uh, uh, I saw your lightning round with or heard it with the manager, Yurik. I've kind of been girding for this all day. Hey, Pat, Pat, Pat did okay. I, 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 I if I must say, yeah, keep it unbiased, but Pat did okay. We got through it. Okay. Minute, minute, and I'm going to give you guys a couple little bit. Minute, 24 seconds. Go. Okay. Porsche or Corvette? What's Porsche, what? Porsche or Corvette? Oh, gosh, a Porsche. Kobach, uh, Prince or Michael Jackson? Uh, Prince. Councilman, <laughs> favorite restaurant in District 2? Uh, Agatushis. Kobach, greatest athlete of all time? Ronaldinho. Councilman, can the Brooklyn Nets beat the Lakers in seven? Anything's possible. <laughs> Kobach, uh, Batman or Superman? Batman. Councilman, music favorite musical artist that you listen to the most? Oh, gosh. Uh, Natalie Cole. Kobach, favorite team in sports? Ooh, uh, I got to say the Bradley Braves. <laughs> Councilman, uh, Mac or PC? 
Um, Mac. Kobach, drums or flats? Flats. Councilman, what app on your phone takes up the most time today? Oh, gosh, probably uh, the PJ Star app. <laughs> Kobach. I have to contribute to the economy. <laughs> subscribe now. What do you got? Uh, well, I'll shoot the question to you. It was what thing or uh, activity do you spend the most money on, like an exorbitant amount of money on? Uh, um, uh, like getting myself nice beers every once in a while. Sounds good. And I'll ask both of you guys this last question. We're out of time. Who do you endorse for mayor? Rita Ali. Hey, she, uh, she, like me, she cares about equity. She's there in the community fighting for gas, grassroots change. Uh, she is going to be a, a mayor of the people, and I'm excited to, to work alongside her after this election. Chris, we're what, two for eight on responses for that? Got to let, let Chuck respond, too. Yeah, I was going to say, Councilman, uh, do you want to add in on that? Well, I think the people make that decision. No, no, no. Who do you endorse for mayor? I don't endorse anybody, and, and neither of them have asked for my endorsement. So I'm not going to do anyone a favor or disfavor. I, I think that uh, they're both, uh, they both obviously have different strengths that they would bring to the table. Fair enough, fair enough. Data Pure has been brought to you by State Farm Agent Aaron Kilgore, located at 3805 North Sterling Avenue, where he specializes in car insurance, home insurance, life insurance, and now investments. He's the best in the business, and you can make him work for you by calling 309-685-7111. The audience, I want to give you guys a big shout-out for sticking with us throughout this uh, unusually long uh, dual interview. And uh, you too, gentlemen, uh, we appreciate you guys jumping on you're, uh, I think some good stuff brought to the table here and voters can make a conscious decision on what they want to do at the polls. Yep. Thank you both very much. We, we really appreciate having you Thank on. You. Chuck Grab, Peter Kobach. Everybody remember early voting starts at the end of this week. You can vote all the way up until election day, which is April 6th. I don't care whether you vote by mail, vote early, vote in person, vote. It's important. <laughs>